little, please pull this out. We just ask you to fill these out. This helps us a whole lot in kind of uh, communications with uh, everybody. So member or frequent attender, if you just give us your name, that would be sufficient. If any of your contact information has changed, we would really appreciate knowing that so you don't miss anything. So new email, new cell phone number, whatever. Uh, if you are new, uh, tell us if you're first time, second time. We'd love to find out how you heard about us. Then on the back, there's some next steps that you can uh, choose to take. There is some information that you can request uh, just regarding things like baptism or if you have chosen to become a member. All of that information is on the back, as well as a place for prayer requests. And we do get together, pray for these every Tuesday. Uh, and then our... Um, our small groups pray for these as well when they meet. So they're getting prayed for multiple times during the week. Uh, so you can put something down there. If uh, it's a private need, you can check that box, and uh, that it won't go out to the church uh, as a whole. So I'm going to give you a moment to fill these out, and then we shall get started. Captivated, I'll say it, I'm on a whole new intrigue My space invaded, upgraded, I hear you talking to me It's in the boom of the thunder, it's in the cool of the rain And I'll say, I don't ever want to get away Tonight is beautiful, it's got my mind on you And everywhere I turn is a reminder Reminding me, I see you in every little thing all day, all day. 
get started, I just want us to be quiet for a moment. I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Let's see what, uh, if his plans are any different than mine today. Here's what I want to do. Who in here right now is in uh, pain? So one, two, come on now. Three. That's it, three people. You're the healthiest congregation in America. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I saw, there we go. All right, four. All right. Raise your hands up again, and I want somebody, doesn't have to be a whole mob of people, but someone just to go over with to that person. All right, here we go. All right, somebody get Rebecca. Is everybody covered? There we go. All right, so here's what we're going to do. This is real simple. This is sort of a precursor. If, and I use this opportunity just to, if you um, are not sure about this prayer thing we're doing next Saturday, come to the training anyway. You won't, you're, you're not committing if you just come. But, but if you want to just find out more about it, just come. And then if you want to sign up, you can. If then you're like, well, no, that's, that's fine too. But at least come and find out about it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to... Uh, just wait a second. I'm just going to tell you what to do and then tell you to do it. All right? So you're going to ask the person their name. You're going to ask them what hurts. And then you're going to pray something like, in, I command pain to go in Jesus' name. Amen. And then find out what happened. All right? So very simple. Anybody have any questions? 
You may begin. And after you've prayed, check with them and see if they're any better. All right, for those of you who have received prayer, how many would say they're 50% better than they were when they got here? Okay, there's one. So one's 50% better. How about 60%? At least 60% better. 70? No? All right. Well, we'll check again maybe at the end of the service and see what's happened. So, all right, cool. So, we're looking at um, the first part of the second chapter of James this week. And, you know, we, we sort of like to believe that um, beauty only runs skin deep and that, that people would sort of all know that as a matter of course. But that's really not true, and that's probably not a surprise to anybody. That um, research actually shows that it pays to be good looking. I'm not, I can't make this stuff up. A 2010 survey by Newsweek concluded that in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotions, looks matter. And the research provided the following results. Now keep in mind, this is almost 10 years ago. And you, I, I wonder if anyone would be, have enough nerve to actually answer these questions in the climate we're in today. 50% of hiring managers believed an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired. 68% of hiring managers believe that once hired, looks will affect the way managers rate an employee's job performance. 59% of hiring managers advised spending as much time and money making sure they look attractive as on perfecting a resume. <laughs> this is the one that gets me. 61% of hiring managers said that women would benefit from wearing clothes that show off their figure. <laughs> yeah. 84% of managers said their bosses would hesitate before hiring a qualified candidate who looked much older than his or her coworkers. Eek. All right, now it's starting to hit close to home. Uh, <laughs> 64% of hiring managers said they believe companies should be allowed to hire people based on looks. I'd love to know what those numbers would look like in, in the climate we're in today. You know, if they'd go, if people would be, on, and I'm not even convinced people were honest in this one, right? You know, are they going to say what they think the survey taker wants to hear? Or are they really giving, giving you their opinion? But the reason I bring this up is it's just one example of the way that we as humans show favoritism or partiality to one another, right? And if I were start to start listing other examples, 
Being tall actually is one of them. Uh, I have, I will confess, I have received favor in my life because of this. Uh, Now there's a flip side to that as well, so, you know, it probably evens out eventually. But if I were to list all the ways that we show favoritism to one another, I could be here for quite a while, and I don't really think that's necessary because probably all of you here have experienced something like that at some point in your life where you were either the beneficiary or perhaps the victim of someone who was showing favor to somebody else at your expense. Uh, And so as you're going to quickly see as we get into this uh, section of James that uh, the subject of this of partiality is right up front in in what he's talking about. It's really sort of the central idea uh, of what he's communicating this week. So let's pray and then we're just going to get right into it. So Lord God, I thank you for uh, this word from your servant James. And I thank you that um, for all of the insight that you have given me and I pray now that uh, I would be would have the favor to share that effectively uh, with your people here today. So we give you thanks and praise and ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you're following along, we'll have it up on the screen, but we're in the, uh, in the epistle of James, the letter of James, second chapter, starting with verse 1. All right, and it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, every other time that this word partiality or favoritism is another way of saying it, and that may be the way it's translated in some people's uh, Bibles, every time this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's always used to say that God doesn't play favorites. Okay, So this is the one time where it's essentially referring to human beings doing the same thing. And this, this, is, this warning... Um, about showing partiality, especially to the poor, is completely inconsistent with faith in Jesus, right? What was going on was these folks, and to whoever James is writing, so his audience, um, they're practicing this kind of favoritism by giving benefits to people uh, who had some kind of an outward advantage. Might be that they had money, they might be they had power, it could be that they were just socially prominent in some way. And so, you know, his audience, his readership, is obviously courting the favor of these important people. And so uh, what he's doing is he's basically taking them to task for it, right? He's found out that this is going on, and he's now he's going to, to uh, tell them exactly what he thinks about that practice, right? All right, so moving on to verse 2, looking at 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? These, these verses are illustrating exactly the discrimination that James is referring to, right? Right? So he's saying that this man that comes in, he's all dressed up, looks really nice. They're giving him special favor, while the man who doesn't look so nice is earning, you know, at best indifference, and maybe even worse, um, 
just downright bad treatment. Right? You know, here, you, you just sit on the floor here, right, while you're giving the other guy the best seat in the house. And so ver verse 4 is using a question to accuse the readers of not one but two different evil actions. So first, they're guilty of creating division in the church, right, by their own actions, despite the fact that they have accepted the abolition of these kinds of class distinctions, right? Reference Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. All right? So they've bought into that idea, but they're not practicing it. Second, they acted like... Uh, basically like evil-minded or prejudiced judges. Um, they're regulating their conduct by some blatantly false principles. All right? So they're practicing a favoritism towards the rich, which is completely inconsistent with faith in Jesus, who died for everyone, right? John 3:16. For God so loved the world, not half the world, not a certain class of people, not folks that have been pretty good in their life. No, everyone, everyone, right? And Deuteronomy 10.17 specifically tells us that God practices no partiality, all right? So that's in the Old Testament law. God practices no partiality. And so he's not going to tolerate his own people doing that if he's not going to do that. And so there was this wide difference that separated the faith they professed from the actions they pursued, right? And so you can apply this warning all across the board in all different kinds of relationships, whether it's race, social class, economic status, you name it. And it also sort of shows us that this idea to show partiality wasn't just a stray thought that popped in their head, right? That word thoughts at the end of verse 4, evil thoughts, can also be translated as the word reasoning, so evil reasoning, which then sort of is telling us that it was not just a stray thought, but it was a rational decision that was made to do this. It wasn't just spur of the moment, all right? These people thought about there was benefit in doing this. And, and so it's people that have that kind of a warped worldview that James is truly talking to, and he's trying to remake their worldview and help them understand how, how wrong that is. So verse 5 then says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And so James is contrasting God's exaltation of the poor with the abuse of the poor that was going on with the folks that he was writing to. And see, the world kind of always looks at poverty-stricken people as insignificant and worthless. That's not the way God sees them. Matthew 5.3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So God sees them as abundant, uh, abounding in the riches of faith. 
And is it not those folks that are economically uh, poor better able than the wealthy to understand God's purposes and God's plans? See, sometimes they don't have any other choice but to trust God for what they need. And as a result, they're going to end up with substantially stronger faith than many wealthy believers who profess Jesus but then never have any reason to trust him for anything because they just kind of do it all themselves. And then he goes on to point out some other interesting things. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what James is saying effectively here is that um, the rich and the way they're treating the poor is resembling honoring an executioner while insulting a valued friend. And the rich face three charges here. First of all, and you have to kind of read ahead in James to really get this, because he kind of just is, uh, when he talks about being oppressed, in James 5.4, he specifically accuses the wealthy of failing to pay past due wages to their workers. So that's really what he's referring to in this oppression. So first of all, they're exploiting the poor. Then, secondly, the rich are now hauling believers into court and persecuting them judicially. And then third, they're belittling Jesus by insulting his person and rejecting his claims. And so this blaspheming that he refers to in verse 7 isn't the rich cursing God. It's the rich dragging poor Christians into court and oppressing them and, what, and the effect that that has. It's causing the onlookers to think that God isn't strong enough to protect his people and that their belief in God is useless. And it's compounded by the fact that it's Christians that are the ones doing this. It's the rich Christians taking the poor ones to court. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And so James is designating this command that it, it comes straight from Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law. Um, and he may have used this term to, as a way of honoring his half-brother, Jesus, who is the king, the true king, and as the one who set forth that law. So we don't really know why he used that term. That's simply a guess. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus defined what a neighbor was, right? It's anyone in need. Anyone in need. And so, to their credit, some of the people that James is writing to have been obedient to God, and so he's giving them credit for that, if that was them. Uh, and the thing is that whenever Christians have actually applied that standard, that idea of loving their neighbor as themselves, it has remade communities, it has remade societies, and it's remade homes. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So 
again, what he's saying is, if the readers of this letter have truly practiced favoritism, James is saying they've committed a sin and they stand as lawbreakers. Now, there were some in the Jewish faith that really saw God's law as containing a lot of detached commands, okay? So, um, it would forbid an action such as murder or an action such as adultery or an action such as robbery, etc. But they, what they didn't always see was that, that those commands were unified, right? And, and so there was a thought process that said, well, if I obey this, then I can slide a little bit on this, right? So I'm, I'm keeping this rock solid, but yeah, 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 I'll, you know, maybe fudge a little bit on my taxes, but I haven't killed anybody. So that, that should count for something, right? So what James is saying is that violating just one commandment makes you a lawbreaker. Right? Anytime we're tempted to praise ourselves for some point of obedience, we really ought to circle back and look at all the other places that we're neglecting to do exactly what the law says. Right? You can't go in, let's just say you've been, you, you run a red light. How well do you think it'll work if you go into court and say, you know, judge, I have stopped at 10,000 red lights through the course of my driving career. How about a pass? I'm not thinking that's going to go real well for you, right? What you've done in the past has no bearing on the law that you just broke. And so you can't excuse running one red light by claiming that you've obeyed the law a whole bunch of times before. And the reason for this, and, and, and what verse 11 here is really talking about, is that the unity of the law lies in its origin, which is with God. Now, what is kind of interesting about verse 11 in particular is, and, and honestly, all the commentators that I read in researching this, no one really understands why James chose these two commandments to illustrate his point. Um, one that probably made the most sense to me was that if you look at the law as, as being two halves of a whole, so you've got the first five, which are really focused on God and how you interact with God, and the second five, which are more focused on how you interact with other men, other humans, these are the first two commandments of the, f the second five, okay? And so that's the tablet that really focuses on loving others. Um, but even if you take that explanation, it's kind of odd that he mentions the idea that someone wouldn't commit adultery but would murder someone. I mean, that just, to me, seems a little bizarre. It's like, well, I won't sleep with your wife, but I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. So, but like I said, I couldn't find any real solid opinion as to why, in particular, he chose those two, so that's going to have to sort of remain a mystery. And then finally, verses 12 and 13. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so they, he's concluding this discussion of partiality by uh, really just appealing for people to be in obedience both in their speech and in their action. And, you know, I think this happens to us a lot. When we start to judge others, we often are forgetting that we're going to face judgment ourselves. And that reality of the fact that we will ultimately be judged ought to be a fairly strong incentive <laughs> for us to avoid judging others in the present. See, Christianity grew and developed in the early church is what I'm referring to in confrontation with a very hostile environment, right? They were hostile to its doctrines. They were hostile to its practice. And the reason that it triumphed was because Christianity had a superior moral practice, right? They could see the good in it even while they were denouncing what was going on. Because the early Christians did what? They fed the needy. They accepted the outcasts. They buried the poor. They cared for the orphans and the widows and the aged. They encouraged the ones who were in prison and who were victims of disaster. And they showed compassion to the persecuted. Right? Their lives proved that Christianity produced a superior character. And it's still the best proof of the reality of our faith. And so may God enable us uh, today and every day to make a bold demonstration of our mercy for other people. All right, so, big idea. You display the love of the Father when you love impartially. You know, that's kind of wrapped up what I see uh, occurring in this particular verse. So then the question is, well, how do you do that? You know, what, what advice is James offering us in this particular passage um, to help us do that? How do we love impartially? Well, I mean, think most obviously, we, if we refuse to judge based on appear outward appearances. Pretty clear in that um, verses 2 through 4, right, where he's talking about that difference between the well-dressed man and the, and the shabbily-dressed man. Um, I have to tell a story on myself in regards to this aspect. Some of you maybe have heard this before, but um, you've probably forgotten it, so... Just bear with me. Um, there was a, when I was working in uh, information technology at the Virginia Farm Bureau, there was a man who uh, was a salesman who, who kept calling on us and trying to sell us stuff. Okay? And his name, coincidentally, was Jeff. Now, Jeff actually spoke when we were in the other building. This is years ago. Uh, but he came and he spoke. Uh, he's since moved to New York. But anyway, I didn't like Jeff. I thought he was one of those really pushy sales types. And it just irritated me. Because I don't like to be have anything kind of pushed on me. And that's how it always felt. And so I did everything I could to avoid him. Well, it turned out that one particular time, a group of my developers were taking a class that was taught at his company. And I had gone along to, to take the class as well. And so I was sitting there, and he comes by while the class is still sort of getting ready to get started, and he asked me to go to lunch with him. 
well, I can't very well say I've got other plans. I mean, I'm sitting right there in his office, basically, so I'm like, sure, I'd love to, lying through my teeth. Um, so we go out to lunch, and the first probably, I don't know, 90% of the lunch kind of went like I expected. You know, it was just small talk, and I'm just kind of keeping him at arm's length and not really wanting to, you know, engage too much because then he'll probably call me more, and certainly don't want that. Well, <coughs> so we're walking back out, uh, and at this time he was driving a fire engine red Jeep Cherokee. It was a really pretty car. And I, I happened to comment on the car. I was trying to be nice, okay? I was trying to at least be civil. So I made the comment about his car, and then he starts to tell me that he actually had bought it from Sonny Haynes, of Haynes Jeep Eagle, for those of you around the, familiar with the area, and that he had driven up to a board meeting for Needle's Eye Ministry in that Jeep, and that's where Jeff saw it. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute. Jeff's involved in Needle's Eye. Hmm. So was, all of a sudden, there's this little paradigm shift, right? Now all of a sudden, I'm seeing him totally different way than I had five minutes earlier. So we start to talk a little bit more about faith. It starts to edge its way into the conversation because I was asking some questions. So we get back to his office, and he says, why? We get back to the office, and he says, wouldn't you come in my office for a second? So I was like, sure. I was pretty curious at this point. Well, then, so when I'm sitting in his office, he proceeds to tell me his story, that he had been a con man and had been in prison for years until he found faith in prison and had come to know Jesus and uh, was just just an on-fire evangelist. And in fact, had copies of uh, My Utmost for His Highest, the Oswald Chambers devotional, that he ordered by the case to give to people. And he even showed me he had a little pocket Bible. It was a pocket New Testament. He had, he'd been invited to go to a Bible study by another inmate. He didn't want to go. Guy, it was sort of similar to the story that I'm, you tell. He's like, this little guy... Jeff's a big guy, too, and this little guy kept asking him to go, and he kept saying no. Finally, just to keep this guy quiet, he's like, okay, I'll go. So he goes to the Bible study, sits there, bored out of his mind, doesn't really pay attention to anything that's being said, and as he's walking out, he's handed a little tiny pocket New Testament. I mean, I don't even know how you could read this thing. Its print was so small. So he takes it back to his cell, opens the Bible up, not really trying to open it to anything. It just opens to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He reads 1 Corinthians chapter 13, immediately knows it's true, immediately knows God is real, and immediately gives his life to him. Just like that. And so you can imagine I'm sitting there feeling about that big <laughs> because of the way I've always perceived him, right? And so, I guess what I'm saying is, don't be that guy. <laughs> right? We, we, we do this far too often, where we judge somebody by how they look, how they act, without having a clue as to what the underlying story is of their life. 
So don't do that, right? You love impartially when you refuse to judge based on outward appearances. Second, you love impartially when you love yourself first. Now, I understand that at first this could seem a little bit narcissistic and perhaps even a bit self-serving, but let's think about it for just a moment, okay? Would you agree that the world is a very negative place? Okay. Um, a, a whole lot of it is geared towards making you feel inadequate, right? Or dissatisfied with yourself, right? Advertisements that on the, uh, as I <laughs> the moron magnet, which is what somebody uh, referred to television as, advertisements tell you that you're never going to be cool enough or thin enough or rich enough or whatever enough unless you buy this, wear this, eat this, etc. Right? Right? And then teachers, bosses, parents, peers, each of those have their own way of sort of reinforcing any negative feelings you have even if they don't mean to. Because often that's the case. People just will say something and they don't really think hard about what they're saying. And we'll take it because we have this sort of negative self-image. And so the idea of loving yourself becomes extremely difficult because we think of ourselves so negatively. Perhaps it's even impossible if you continue to think of yourself that way. And so how do you know if you're viewing yourself negatively? You know, well, I would say that if you engage in one or more of the following you know, thought patterns or behaviors, you probably have trouble loving yourself. If you think like a victim, if you battle low self-esteem, if you are judgmental or even prejudiced towards others, if you are too cautious or even fearful, if it is easier for you to be anxious than to trust God, if you find that you're always hesitant or always pessimistic, if you're very sarcastic, perhaps even moving past sarcasm into cynicism, if you are resentful or bitter or easily upset. If you have a fear of man, a fear of being wrong, a fear of looking stupid, a fear of risking something. If it's easy for you to entertain doubt or unbelief. If you're easily intimidated or prone to believe the worst about yourself and about others if you feel unworthy or are entirely too self-conscious, if you are timid or frightened or prone to discouragement, if you live a life that is subdued and you're more familiar with defeat than you are with victory. But here's the thing. Jesus paid a price for all of that negativity. It all belongs to him 
you need to give it back. See, Jesus didn't just die for you. He died as you. And so that negativity is his. And the thing is that the kingdom sees you very differently from the way that you likely see you. Doesn't scripture talk about the old man and the new man or woman? We need to see ourselves the way heaven sees us. And so, if I pushed any buttons with that group of things that I just read, and I thought it was so interesting because Chip was headed right in the same direction this morning during worship. Right? That's exactly, it just it lined up so perfectly with this. We need to release that. The chains are broken. Give the stuff back to Jesus, right? And begin to see yourself the way heaven sees you. Scripture is full of, of the way that heaven sees you. And if you want to actually pursue this, what I would encourage you to do is go through the New Testament and highlight every place where it talks about who you are in Jesus. You will come away with a completely different perspective of yourself than what you think right now. And if you will do that, then you can begin to live according to the person that you are and the person that, the way that heaven sees you in Jesus. All right? So you love impartiality when you love yourself first. And you, of course you love impartiality if you love everyone else the same way. I want to show you a clip from a, uh, a classic film. You will recognize it probably immediately. Bubba. Bubba was my best good friend. I had to make sure he was okay. Somebody else was saying, help me, Forrest, help me. Charlie, all over this area. I gotta have those fast movers in here now. Over. 
I think we, th we saw Forrest get shot in the buttocks. <laughs> See, he's going back into the junk. He's got one objective in mind, right? It's find Bubba. That's his best friend. He wants to find him above all else. But he keeps finding other people. And rather than ignore them, let them lay there, maybe come back for him after he's found Bubba, he shows no partiality. He, he, as he finds each person, he carries them out. And then he carries the next one out. And then the next one. Even though he's in the midst of death and gunfire and explosions. This reminds me of a story about a guy named Bill who was this sort of wild-haired, somewhat shabbily dressed college student. You know, like most college kids, his wardrobe for college was a torn T-shirt and jeans. Pretty much standard. Uh, but he became a believer while he was attending a college-based Bible study. And so uh, near the campus, there was this very conservative church. You know, one of those where the men wear suits and the women all wore dresses or slacks or, you know, but very conservative. Yeah. So Bill decides to go there. It's close. So he thought, well, I'll go, go, I'll go to church there. So he, one Sunday morning, he shows up. He's late, and he's not wearing any shoes. And the sanctuary is packed. So he's walking down the, the aisle, and he's trying to find a seat. And he, he can't find one anywhere. And, and he's, he's practically reached the pulpit. And there's, there's nowhere to sit down. So he just squats down, sits in the carpet, in the aisle. Now you can imagine in a church like this, the feeling of unease that was flowing through the entire congregation. Probably you could almost cut it with a knife, it was so thick. And it's not, a, not real difficult to imagine what they're all thinking. Finally, from the very back of the church, this gray-haired gray elder in a three-piece suit starts walking towards this young man. He's, got a, he's walking with a cane. And you can imagine the tensions ratcheting up a notch higher because now everybody's 
wondering what kind of confrontation is going to occur because surely this man is coming to escort this undesirable out of the church. Every eye in the church is sort of focused on this developing drama. Even the pastor is waiting to begin his sermon until whatever is going to happen, happens. The elderly man finally reaches Bill, drops his cane on the floor, and with great difficulty lowers himself to sit next to him. Wisely, the pastor says, what I'm about to preach you will never remember. What you've just seen, you'll never forget. You see, we need a lot more Forrest Gumps and kindly gray-haired elders in this world. How about you? Can you love the demanding boss the same as the friendly bank teller? Can you love the unreasonable customer the same as the ones who never complain? Can you love the unwed mother the same as your pregnant daughter? Can you love the alcoholic or drug-addicted man like your own son? Can you sit down next to all the bills that inhabit your life? You can if you choose to love impartially by loving everyone else the same. Some things to think about as we go from his place today. Have you ever been partial to someone because of who they were or how they looked? Maybe in the workplace or maybe at church. Think about what does it really mean to love everyone equally with no favoritism or partiality? How did this message change your perspective on the homeless community? And then finally, why do you think the royal law applies so heavily in this week's passage? So to conclude, I want to give you a a word problem for you to think about. And I would caution you to, to think you immediately know the answer. But to give it some thought. So imagine you're um, a member of our greeter team. And further imagine that the church is experiencing in the midst of a pretty significant budget shortfall. So it's a Sunday morning, and during the sermon, you happen to look over to the left, and uh, you notice someone that just kind of slipped in, evidently after the service started. There's a man, he's very nicely dressed, kind of about early 50s, has that CEO hair. <laughs> and after you look at him for a moment, you, you realize that, that he's the owner of several large car dealerships in the area. And then you, you, you're still kind of glancing around, and then you notice on the opposite side of the church is, an, is another new person. But this person is, is kind of wearing ragged clothing. It's pretty clear that he didn't shower and didn't shave for church that day. 
His eyes are bloodshot and looks like he probably had trouble rolling out of bed that morning. But he looks familiar too. And you know you've seen him before somewhere and so you're bracking your brain trying to figure it out and then finally you realize, oh wait a minute, that's the guy who changed my oil at Mac Service Center the other day. And there's nobody sitting near him. And so the service ends and both men are leaving the church. Nobody's talking to either one of them. And worse, they're, it's, it's they're headed out in such a way that you can only catch up to one of the two. Now, the thing is, whichever one that you will talk to will come back again next week and even become a regular church attender. So who do you run after? Let's pray. Father, it is so difficult for us to go through life and be completely impartial. It's almost as if we are programmed to be judgmental and to look at people differently based on their appearance or their way of speaking or any one of a hundred other ways that they might act or behave. So Father, I pray now that you would give each and every one of us the courage and the strength to buck that trend. to find it in our hearts to no longer be the world's judge and jury. Father God, break our hearts for the lost, the downtrodden, the lowly in this life, Allow us to see them the way you see them. As another one of your perfect creations. Break our heart, Lord, for what breaks yours. Lord, I give you thanks and praise and honor and glory and so much more that you are due. Just ask that you continue to fill this place.
Let your spirit continue to move. Praise and honor and glory is yours, O God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Open. 